Many universities have invested in measures such as education, formal trainings, and establishing sexual violence centers to reduce the incidence of sexual violence toward their students on and off campus. However, sexual violence still remains a problem within university populations. A 2001 survey of University of Alberta students found that one in five students have experienced a sexual assault. Other research finds that both female and male students reported being sexually harassed by other students, faculty, and staff, and that one in 10 female students at major research universities are sexually harassed by a faculty member. Statistics like this demonstrate the importance of education and trainings targeted at reducing instances of sexual violence in post-secondary education and challenging the broader culture that allows sexual violence to occur in the first place. Although it's still not something we talk about often, sexual violence can harm a student emotionally and physically, may compromise their career, and affects the department and university as a whole. The University of Alberta prohibits sexual violence of any and all kinds under its sexual violence policy. The university defines sexual violence as any act of a sexual nature or that specifically targets sexuality and is committed without consent. It includes but is not limited to sexual assault, sexual harassment, indecent exposure, voyeurism, distribution of intimate images, and impairing another person so that they are vulnerable to a non-consensual sexual act. Simply put, sexual violence is an all-encompassing, non-legal term that refers to any attitudes or behaviors that are sexually violating. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll be talking primarily about sexual assault and sexual harassment, which are just two examples of sexual violence. Beyond simply naming experiences of sexual violence, the University of Alberta sexual violence policy also makes it clear that anyone who's experienced a form of sexual violence is entitled to support. Even if the sexual violence did not occur on university property, the person who experienced the violence is still entitled to support from the university and the university's resources throughout their healing process. Additionally, every person has a right to make their own decisions as to what to do next and to have those choices respected. Asking the person who experienced sexual violence what they want to do can help them reestablish control over the situation. Today, we have a panel of people who are highly knowledgeable about sexual violence on university campuses. First, we have Samantha Pearson, the director of the University of Alberta Sexual Assault Center, and who, as an anti-sexual violence advocate, works most closely with people who've experienced all types of sexual violence. Secondly, we have Deb Erkus, who is the director of student conduct and accountability, and who took a lead role in drafting University of Alberta's sexual violence policy. Third, we have Evelyn Hamden, who is from the Office of Safe Disclosure and Human Rights and who receives disclosures of sexual violence in her role as an advisor. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. <laughs> Samantha, I think I'll start with you. What are some key things you'd like people to know about sexual violence on campus? So when we talk about sexual violence, in the presentations that we do across campus, I think we like to focus on what we refer to as like core facts about sexual violence. First of all, we like to front load that with the idea that sexual violence is unfortunately very common. And I think that's important to note because it's not something we often talk about or hear about, um, even in light of the Me Too movement. 
the context of post-secondary institutions, we're really just a microcosm of our larger society where we know that sexual violence is a frequent experience, um, and in particular, sexual assault we know is a, an epidemic. Somewhere around one in three women and at least one in six men will experience a sexual assault before the age of 18 in Canada. And we also know that the 18 to 24 age demographic is especially sort of vulnerable to sexual assault because of some key lifestyle factors or um, elements of the environments they find themselves in so frequently at social gatherings around large groups of people. Fortunately, that is the, the thing that makes you more likely to experience sexual assault is, is being around other people, not to sound scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Secondly, when we talk about core facts, uh, we look at the, the idea that it happens between people who know each other and often have a relationship with one another. I think the most recent Stats Canada numbers ballpark that in the neighborhood of 85% of sexual assaults where the perpetrator is known to the victim or the, the survivor. People rarely lie about being sexually assaulted. So police data indicate that somewhere around 2 to 8% of reports to police are actually false allegations, which means a whopping 92 to 98% of the reports that they receive are truthful. I think the cases where folks are lying or where details have been changed in, in some ways, those tend to be the most high-profile cases, the ones that we hear about that grab our attention. Mm-hmm. And so they occupy a larger space in our society's brain, unfortunately. Um, And when we're talking about reports of sexual assaults, I think it's important overall to recognize that it's a highly underreported crime. Only about 5% of sexual assaults are ever reported to police, and I know on campus um, it's hard to get an accurate picture of those numbers as well because there's a lot of difficult hurdles and obstacles to overcome in terms of reporting one's experience. There's a lot of barriers and stigma to doing so, so we don't have an accurate picture of how frequently sexual assault happens. And then the final core fact that we like to emphasize is that the only cause of sexual violence is someone making the choice to violate another person's boundaries. We hear a lot about how somebody was dressed or how much they had to drink or, you know, is the lack of communication between people. And that's why the sexual assault happened. But that's not the case. What we know to be true about sexual assault is that it's always about somebody feeling entitled to or deserving of another person's body or their attention or putting your own wants and desires ahead of somebody else's boundaries and their wants and needs. Um, So that's why sexual assault happens, and I think that's important to talk about. It's important to recognize that sexual violence can be thought of as both verbal and physical expressions that are based on like a platform of ideas and beliefs that designate a group of people as less than. So sometimes we think of those as the isms, right? Racism, sexism. Um, homophobia, heterosexism, and that makes it easier to do violence against them. Um, So, for example, ideas like women should be subordinate would be an example of sexism, Um, or the idea that LGBTQ folks are just confused about their gender or their sexuality. That idea in our brain makes it easier to catcall or assault someone because we don't see them as being the same as us or as important as, as us. And I think that's an important connection because it highlights something maybe pretty intuitive that thoughts precede actions, right? We don't often do things that we 
or say things that we haven't thought about before or aren't rooted in beliefs that we have about the world around us. And I spend so much time talking about this because I think uh, it lends itself to a really important visualization, which is uh, what we refer to as the pyramid of sexual violence. Really, it's just a pyramid shape with all those attitudes and beliefs I just talked about on the base, and then those other harms like physical expressions, verbal expressions built on top. This is important because I think we often focus on those individual experiences of harm um, and neglect to focus on the entire culture that allows sexual violence to happen in the first place. Um, and it's really important to challenge that culture. Like with a pyramid, if we thought about a bunch of building blocks, if we were to, or like Jenga, mm -hmm. if you were to take a few of the blocks off the bottom, the whole, the whole structure itself, the whole pyramid would be destabilized and kind of crumble, right? And so mm -hmm. if we can really attack those attitudes and beliefs or counter those and challenge those, then I think we uh, are on the path to actually shifting the culture a little bit. So an example would be, when we say that it's not funny to joke about having sex with, and I'm using air quotes for those of you who can't see, um, so having sex with somebody who's gay because they wouldn't identify that way if they had a good heterosexual partner, um, which is, in essence, describing that idea of corrective rape. When we call that out, what we're saying is that um, sexual violence isn't actually something to be normalized or trivialized, and I think it makes it less likely for folks to translate that into actual actions later up uh, on the pyramid because they get the sense that that isn't something that's okay and that people are going to call them out on it when they even verbalize those ideas, let alone act on something like that. Thank you. When you speak about sexual violence, I wonder, too, if you could help us understand what all falls underneath that and how you would distinguish, you mentioned, saying things versus physically doing things, if we could talk a little bit about that. We think about sexual violence as being overall an umbrella term, and under that, I think, fall a variety of different legal and human rights definitions of violating experiences, and I think the ones we're focusing on would be sexual harassment and sexual assault, uh, with sexual harassment being uh, more on the verbal end or middle of that pyramid, end of that spectrum, that focuses on verbal expressions that make somebody feel uncomfortable or threatened or intimidated in some way that are of a sexual nature. And then we also talk a lot, like I said, about sexual assault, which would be focused on those verbal expressions sort of at the top of the pyramid. So any form of sexual contact without somebody else's consent, which can include a lot of diversity of, of experiences and maybe is a bit more of a broad definition than people realize because we tend to go to definitions of like rape in our head um, when we, we think about sexual violence, which absolutely is an experience of sexual assault, but can be a bit more prescriptive than our legal definition here in Canada and the definition that we understand at the University of Alberta. Okay, thank you. Deb, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the culture that normalizes and trivializes sexual violence, particularly as it pertains to graduate students. We mention in the policy the term rape culture, which is really that culture that allows these kinds of things to 
to exist and, and, and the, the pyramid that Sam was talking about. And it's important to know, too, that often people who experience sexual violence have also internalized some of these things. So there can be self-blame. There can be questions about whether or not this was serious enough. There could be all kinds of things going on with a person. And so that, in general, of course, the university, again, is a microcosm of the wired society. And so, um, and graduate students are almost a microcosm of the university society. So they have a set of specific kind of circumstances that put them in, in a maybe more vulnerable to sexual violence, but certainly that they may be less likely to report or disclose sexual violence because there might be times, for example, that their funding is, you know, they're reliant fully on their supervisor for funding for academic assessment, for their study visas. And so you can have all kinds of things going on with that where they are maybe feeling like their boundaries are being pushed, but they're not sure if it's sexual violence or just a new culture they've come into. You also have, for example, working long hours, working with lots of other graduate students. There may be travel involved. There may be alcohol at events that are involved. And so all of these things sort of work together to keep someone from disclosing an event or an incident of sexual violence. And the other piece is that it's really not easy to move once you're a, a, in, a, in a situation as a graduate student. It's not easy to move to a different um, area or a different supervisor. And so you're, you're left with that question of, you know, do I disclose and, and seek support or do I just keep it to myself because it's so complicated? Certainly. We have seen that in our cases at FGSR, particularly among international students. Mm -hmm. Along these lines, then, how do we go about challenging and shifting this culture? I think I am always a firm believer that all of us have a lot of work to do around both acknowledging and challenging the ways we feel entitled to other people's attention and to their bodies. Um, and overall, I think Western society doesn't teach us as people how to be resilient in the face of rejection. I think we're really taught that we're just supposed to take what we want so we don't get rejected. So it's not even a question of how to, to be resilient or how to sort of roll with it when we don't get what we want. Um, and I think this message is repeated again and again right down to our history books if we think about what colonialism is, right? So the history of, of our entire country is sort of based on just taking what we feel we deserve or are entitled to and doing with it what we will. So uh, when it comes to graduate studies in particular, I think it's important uh, for people with power in this environment um, and specifically people who have that like immense uh, responsibility of teaching other people to recognize that they have a lot of power, actually, even if they don't feel like it all the time, and think twice about entering into intimate or sexual relationships with the people they have power over. So mm -hmm. just naming that explicitly, being really cognizant of that, and um, putting the needs of other people ahead of our own needs. I want to just emphasize something that Sam said that, you know, I don't think we pay enough attention to. Quite often we, are, we talk about people, you know, using protective behaviors for themselves, making sure that they're not out at night, making sure that they're out with friends, they carry their keys, they cover their drinks, all of those kinds of things. And really, I think what we have to acknowledge is that 100% of the responsibility for sexual violence is with the person who chooses to engage in sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And no matter what kinds of actions anyone else takes, whether it's someone who's a potential victim of sexual violence or someone who might be a bystander, 
They wouldn't have to do anything if the person chose not to engage in sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So are there rules of thumb that you would suggest a person holds tight in their uh, moral conduct? Yeah, I mean, just always pay attention to the other person's boundaries and mm-hmm. respect them, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're asking people to do um, a really vulnerable thing that we don't, as a society, get a lot of support in doing or education on at an early age, which is, you know, asking do you like this? Do you mm-hmm. want this? Do you mm-hmm. like me? Do you want me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we ask that question, it creates the possibility that somebody says, no, I don't like you. I don't want you. I don't want this situation. I don't feel comfortable. Um, and that is a very, I don't want to underplay how mm-hmm. challenging that can be even for grown adults like <laughs> ourselves in this room. Um, hearing no or not feeling like somebody likes us or values us um, can be hugely impactful but I think much like exercising you got to work out that muscle Mm -hmm. for it to become strong Mm -hmm. Um, and so I mean sometimes we have to hear things that we didn't want to hear or um, that make us feel less than. One thing that comes to mind um, as we're talking about these critical ways of preventing um, sexual violence from occurring is just I think in the number of times that grad students have come into the Office of Safe Disclosure and Human Rights to disclose, and it began with a question. Do you want to go for a drink? Do you want to come for dinner? And they didn't want to, but they couldn't say no. So sometimes Mm -hmm. you may go through the motions of seeking consent without thinking about, as Sam alluded to earlier, didn't allude to, explained clearly earlier, without considering all of the complex uh, networks of relations of power that are embedded in the graduate-student-supervisor relationship. So even before you ask the question, you might think, could I, it, could I, is there possibly space here for an honest answer? Would, would my 26-year-old student feel comfortable saying, no, I really don't want to do that? Mm-hmm. I think about that, especially in drinking environments, mm-hmm. where certain people really are not interested in drinking environments and others are, but the the supervisor might think, well, let's just go out for beers, Mm -hmm. but then that leaves out certain people. So what should faculty members know about the sexual violence policy that will help them understand their role in addressing sexual violence? I think the most important thing um, in the sexual violence policy is that there's a big difference between a disclosure and a complaint. So a disclosure is when someone tells someone else about an experience of sexual violence. Just telling is a disclosure. A complaint is a disclosure for the purpose of actually initiating a, a university response, such as an investigation or, uh, you know, we want charges laid against this person, so police okay. complaint. Those are two very different things, and I think um, people are sort of under the impression that people need to make a complaint in order to get the support they need, and that is absolutely not the case here. We need to hear a disclosure only, and then we can offer a wide range of options. So what's really important for faculty members to know is that they will only ever be taking disclosures. They will not take complaints. Mm -hmm. Complaints go to specific 
areas where investigations are done. So they will never have to fact find. They will never have to um, engage in any kind of investigation about whether or not this happened. Their role is specifically one of support and connecting to resources. And so that makes it a, a lot less daunting to take a disclosure because the pressure isn't on you to do the right thing, right? It, you just need to support and connect this person with the resources that can help them out. You can offer um, certain modifications to address safety issues, you know, working hours or place of work, those kinds of things can be adjusted to make sure someone feels safe. That's just fine. Um, but. Uh, making a complaint is only one option, and that goes to either the police or protective services or safe disclosure and human rights if it's a complaint against a staff member or a faculty member. So, Ev, I wonder if you could help us understand when a student discloses to you, how can you respond? Mm -hmm. So I think being prepared for disclosure begins long before you have a student in your office disclosing something. I think it means thinking about um, the kinds of things Deb has just referred to. What does it mean to take a disclosure? And there are workshops you can take on campus that actually help you learn the basics of hearing a disclosure. I think it's important to recognize that the student has who has come to you has likely struggled uh, very mightily to get the courage up to come forward and to have this conversation. In my experience in the Office of Safe Disclosure and Human Rights, Things have often been going on for a very long time before the student feels desperate enough or confident enough uh, to come forward. So the first few moments that you have a student in front of you who's sharing something, and it may not come out all at once, it may come out in a very kind of oblique ways, it's really important to just listen with great empathy um, and care to what the student is saying. Um, and come with an attitude of belief and support. Like Deb said, you don't have to fact find, you don't have to get to, a, and I'm using air quotes now, a truth. You simply need to hold a space for this person to share something that's clearly very difficult for them to share. Mm -hmm. I would also say in preparation, um, I know for myself, like I have file folders full of places that I can immediately direct people to because when a student comes to you, it may be important in that moment to be able to say, listen, here are some places you can go for further and more refined kinds of support like the Sexual Assault Center um, on campus or elsewhere or counseling or other kinds of support. Um, so I think it's important to ha just have that for your own sake and for the sake of being able to offer something immediately to a student. Um, so I think, you know, really to sort of sum up the most important thing, and Deb has really already said this, uh, when you're hearing a disclosure, you're hearing something in confidence. I mean, there may be one or two um, egregious cases where you need to reach out to somebody else because issues of safety are at hand. In that case, call the Office of Safe Disclosure and Human Rights will help you figure out what to do immediately. Uh, but the most important thing is don't ask a million clarifying questions. Be in a position of listening. Ask the student um, how you can support them going forward if they want to go forward, remembering, and I always say this at the beginning of a disclosure, you're driving this bus. I'm not driving this bus. You decide. Do you right now just want some kind of um, uh, s support like from the Sexual Assault Center? Do you need 
feel like you need some counseling? Uh, do you need medical attention? How can I help direct you? Give them a buffet of options and you allow them to choose in their own time and in their own way how they want to go forward. Mm. Yeah. And if I could just jump in too, I think it's really important for, for um, anyone who might be receiving a disclosure, so it could be faculty member, staff, it could be mm -hmm. another student, that you don't have to know of all of these things. You're not alone in this. You're mm -hmm. not expected to be an expert. Mm -hmm. There are these offices, so Office of Safe Disclosure and Human Rights, the Sexual Assault Center, um, Office of the Dean of Students, where you can call and you get the support you need mm -hmm. in order to help this mm -hmm. person along. Mm -hmm. um, and that's hugely important that, that you can make that call and you you don't have to know this stuff up front. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there are a lot of options and resources available to supervisors, staff, uh, graduate students. Um, Sam, in, in an ideal world, what would you like to see happen when um, a disclosure is made? Um, I, I definitely think the points that Ev brought up are really important I think in our presentations that Ev uh, so lovingly plugged a little bit when we talk about responding to disclosures. We really drill it down to listening, believing, and exploring options. I think if people can do those things um, in that moment, they're making a world of difference and, and probably providing a much more supportive response than that person is likely to receive elsewhere, even though things are, are changing and, and there's been lots of campaigns around um, believing survivors. Uh, I still think most people are met with disbelief or um, an inquisition about their own behavior. So if you can curb um, the often natural desire to ask questions, I think we feel like if we put on our investigator hat, then we'll be able to support somebody better and that's not the case. Um, then I think you're, you're in really good shape. Um, I think what we like to mention to faculty and staff on campus is that, you know, we're also a space on campus for people who are supporting folks in their life, and that includes uh, folks who are receiving disclosures. Um, and so it's totally um, normal and acceptable to maybe have that first conversation, you know, try to do as best you can and then give us a call and say, I don't know how that went or, mm -hmm. you know, how could I con continue best to support this student or um, I'm feeling really impacted by what I heard. Uh, I'm sad that this happens to people in the community that I care about. Those are really valid reactions to have and we are a totally safe, confidential um, and even anonymous place to, to talk about those sort of things. Um, so maybe beyond even just that initial conversation, recognizing that it doesn't need to stop there and there's support both for um, yourselves as people receiving disclosures and for students uh, beyond that just initial conversation. Um, I think all too often folks kind of hold on to that conversation themselves and, and rack themselves with guilt over what they should have said or could have said or um, really go through, put themselves through the ringer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think that's necessary. You don't need to navigate those waters alone. Thank you so much. What a rich conversation. We have so much to learn from you and we're really glad you're at U of A. So thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> As our panelists emphasized, to truly prevent sexual violence in academia, the culture and conditions which support it must be challenged. 
This kind of culture change can only happen when individuals start to support and believe people who've had experiences of sexual violence and then commit to preventing it in their communities. So although sexual violence toward graduate students is a pervasive problem in academia, as an individual, you can still have impact. First and foremost, it's up to each and every one of us to accept that none of us are entitled to comment on or touch another person's body without their consent, period. If you're looking to do even more, then we think it's important to practice bystander intervention in an effort to counter the sexual violence narrative and bring attention to harmful situations we aren't involved in directly. Although it may sound intimidating, bystander intervention can take a variety of forms. Just remember your four Ds, direct, distract, delegate, and delay. This means that everything from calling out someone's inappropriate behavior directly, casually inserting yourself into a harmful conversation and changing the topic as a distraction, calling on a colleague to help you address an abuse of power, and checking in with someone you're concerned about after the fact can be a powerful tool in shifting our culture away from one where sexual violence thrives in silence. Pushing for this kind of change will be a long and difficult process, but as faculty, we have a personal responsibility to try and create safe learning and living environments for our students. At the end of the day, it can be comforting to know that you're not doing all this work alone. The U of A is made up of countless individuals who are striving for a campus community free of sexual violence. There are also a number of offices here to support you through everything from effectively supporting a student who's been assaulted or harassed to educating your fellow faculty on what the sexual violence policy means for your department. If you would like to learn more about bystander intervention and view a list of university resources regarding sexual violence, please check out the resource section in this module.